uh, now in the words of Monty Python, and now for something completely different. So Boz Lorman, he's a director, right? And uh, he's getting a lot of buzz for this, right? Um, which reminds me of a joke. Uh, if you went to Graceland and didn't think it was tacky, uh, you might be a redneck. Um, <laughs> but, <clears throat> and now you'll hear nothing else the rest of the day. But uh, for all of the buzz that you might be getting about this film, um, 21 years ago, he got a lot of buzz about this film. And right now the parents are going, oh my gosh, you have my kids in the room. Um, don't panic. Um, everything, this is a family show. We understand that. So uh, I'm judging accordingly. But um, this story called Moulin Rouge with Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman, um, it's a story about a woman named Satine who is a dancer <laughs> and uh, who works in a cabaret um, and who will do anything as long as they pay, right? And um, she is met by a young aspiring artist, um, uh, a member of the, the, uh, the lower class, whose name is, of all things, Christian. And he has come to woo her, not like wooing in the other sense of the word, but to love her, to persuade her of a love that is lasting, that is real, and that is unconditional. And the storyline of that whole story is of Christian trying to convince Satine that there really is a love like that, a love that she doesn't think exists. And in as much as you might hear about that movie and, yeah, adult, this is your film, it's not the other, it's not a kid's film, um, let me just put it to you very frankly. The storyline of this film is the storyline of the Old Testament prophet Hosea. It, it is the story of one who would uh, love anyone who might love them, and it is the Lord who sends Hosea to convince her and to woo her back to himself as an object lesson for Israel. You've come to love everything but me, and I'm coming to remind you that you belong to me because my love is real. The rest of them isn't. And, and that is the storyline of Hosea. And the reason I'm even invoking this film is for this reason. At the very beginning of the film and the very end of the film, there is one song written by a guy named Eden Abez. Who, who, who once said to a police officer, um, I know you look at me and think I'm crazy, but I'm not. But there's a lot of people that are out there that don't look crazy, but they are. <laughs> so this is who we're dealing with, right? He's the guy that wrote it. It's Nat King Cole that popularizes it. And then in this film, it's David Bowie that sings it at the front and the end of the song. And the song's punchline is this. The greatest thing you'll ever do is to love and be loved in return. The greatest thing you'll ever do is love and be loved in return. And, you know, you hear that and you go, is that true? You just sit that with him for a while. He's right. You won't do anything better in this world than to love and to be loved in return. You you can find a cure for cancer. You can understand quantum physics and the Higgs boson. You can get to the depths of consciousness. You can understand why George Lucas made the prequels. Any of those deep <laughs> mysteries that are inexplicable. The greatest thing you'll ever do is to love. Kids, look. You want to make the team. You want to make first chair. You want to get a full ride to college. You want to meet Taylor Swift in person and understand what midnight is about. You think that's the greatest thing. I'm cupping your head in my hands, metaphorically speaking, and saying, no, silly. 
the greatest thing you'll ever do is to love and be loved in return. You can't think of anything better. And the question is, ah, nice, it's a song, it's in a film twice, who cares? Does it fit? Is there any chance of that other than just sort of singing along in the song and believing in an ideal that is no longer worthy of our consideration? It is. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that the, the 10 verses that we're going to look at in the letter that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, a letter that is most apt for a day remembering the Reformation, is precisely the path towards discovering that the greatest thing you'll ever do is love and be loved in return. And I think that, that the even possibility of us getting anywhere closer to that rests in faith in three things. And now we're going to look at it in, under three heads. Our condition, his intervention, and the only explanation for it all. It's not just a song. It's not just a line in a song. It's not just a line in a song in a film. How we get there is through faith in three things. Our condition, his intervention, and the only explanation for it all. We're in Ephesians. We're in chapter 2. We're going to do our best to consider 10 verses in the short amount of time that we have. If you will, I wonder if you could stand. We'll get to it. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the gospel word of the Lord. Thanks, Victor. You can sit. Um, it's possible the older you get that you've probably had the experience where you are flying high, things are great, um, um, you're singing even in the rain, and then uh, somebody looks at you in the eye and they say to you, we got to talk. I, I got to share with you some news, they will say. And, and the experience is not just uh, dispiriting, it's kind of like all the bulbs in the room explode, and, and now your life is a paler shade of gray. And so far... In Ephesians, Paul has lifted us up. He has spoken to us of the blessings of God that has come to us in Jesus. He has spoken of things such that the only proper response to him is praise, to the praise of his glory. And then as we considered last week, in light of what he has taught us, that leads us to praise. Now he prays for anybody that would grasp it, that they might grasp it more fully. But where we get to today is to kind of set all of that in perspective, to explain why all of that was necessary. 
So far, it's all been kind of wine and roses, and he's lifted us up to heights, but here he has come to help sober us up. And the way he does that is to first speak of what is our natural condition. And he summarizes that natural condition in verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's got a temporal quality. He's talking about something that was. There's a habitual character to it. The idea of walking in trespasses and sins is something kind of, it's a, it's a pattern, it's a settled thing, it's, a, it's how you roll. It's temporal, it's habitual, and it's also terminal. He says you were dead. Now, you ask any of us, uh, we might say some things, but probably in our heart of hearts, given us being modern people, if you ask people, what is our, kind of our uh, us condition? And I, I think most of us would sort of say, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Um, we all have our foibles. Uh, we are frail. We make mistakes. Um, we, we're fallible in that way. Um, we, we like to think of ourselves as uh, somebody that may be afflicted in some way. We kind of think of ourselves as the dark knight in, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, that whatever is wrong with us, it's just a flesh wound. Right? You've got no arms left. It's just a flesh wound. Paul is here to say to you, um, it's more than a flesh wound. Uh, you're dead. You're not just sick. You are incapable of remedy or of recovering yourself. It is that bad. You are dead, he says, in trespasses and sins. It is natural, it is habitual, and it is a defiant disobedience to God. That's what trespasses and sins are, and that's what it means to walk around in it. Like, this is how I have navigated, and it's worked for me, and I don't care what the consequences are. That's what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. Now, we hear that, and, and we think, Paul, you just, you just sound like one of my parents when they were having a bad day and I screwed up. You're a bad boy. You made bad choices. Paul is saying that that, that is actually uh, too superficial of a diagnosis. It's not just that you're a bad person that did bad things. Shame on you. He's talking about something more fundamental in us, something that is genuinely, should be genuinely concerning to us, and it's this. It's what St. Augustine said in his Confessions. You and I don't just have a problem with our behavior. We have a problem with what we desire. And as he puts it, the essence of sin is disordered loves. You love things, some things too much, and you love other things too little, and it is all out of whack. And you are mostly insensible to it because it really has worked for you in some ways. It has served you in the ways that you've gotten it, but loves are all out of the way. They're all disordered. And it leads us to places and to harm and to, and to uncharity that we never dreamt we were capable of. That's our basic nature. That's our natural condition. Let me, let me try to take that really big, big idea and, and put it into more familiar, accessible terms. Everybody remembers the story of Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Boo! Right? 
tax collector. He's a Jew. He's working for Rome. He's learning how to bilk everybody, especially the poor, to defraud them of what is theirs in order to get the most money. And there's a part of him that does that because he wants to live. He needs money to, to live off of. He's got to have food. He's got to have clothing. He's got to have a place to live. He wants that. It's a reasonable desire. But what has taken up such priority in his life is to make so much money that he's forgotten entirely about what it is to act with integrity or live as one who was part of God's covenant people from age immemorial. And Jesus has to come to him and say, You're com- I'm coming to your house I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to eat with you. You're going, to, you're going to host me. And somehow in the course of that meal, something shifts in Zacchaeus. All of his loves, everything that he desired, which was out of whack, suddenly gets reordered. And what he most was gravitated to, most animated him at the very beginning, that, that gets put Farther down on the list, and now what he wants to do most of all is honor the Lord with what he has such that he wants to restore what he did and to do above and beyond what anybody or even the law was asking of him. That's, that's an, ex- an explanation. That's an illustration of what it means for God to come along and reorder your loves because our natural condition is to have our loves out of whack. And when we go there, we just think that's an unfortunate occurrence in our lives. Well, I, I love this a little too little. I love this a little bit too much. But look, when you were a kid, you had your whoopee, right? And then, but at age 14, if you still have your whoopee, something has not clicked. And all of us have a whoopee. All of us go to a place to help us feel safe and secure. It is our mighty fortress. And somehow in the midst of it, the Lord is trying to say to you, I'm your mighty fortress but you don't believe me. And that's why Augustine says elsewhere in his confessions, he loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee which he does not love for thy sake. Meaning, there's all sorts of things that you might enjoy and delight in and love, but if it is not in some way coupled to your love of the Lord, then it becomes your precious. It becomes your whoopee. It becomes that thing for which you love and find your ballast and your strength in, and meanwhile, you don't know what you've set yourself up for. That is our natural condition. And it'll take you in, in a variety of places that you never dreamed you could go. And some really harmful places to yourself. Um, I've, I've read this quote to you before. It's from an author named Freddie DeBoer. He's as atheist as they come, but he's as honest as, as the sky is, as the sun is um, predictable. He, he wrote this in, a, in an essay from a few years ago called You Can't Fake It. He says, I've known people in my life who are the most outwardly secure and confident, who never betrayed a hint of doubt or guilt or remorse, who projected cool at all times, who were quite popular, who received plaudits and positive affirmation from others at all times, who were academically and professionally successful, who had money, respect, who cultivated the kinds of micro-celebrity that are common to contemporary life. Think Instagram influencer. And then... And yet the flow of life revealed that inside they hated themselves fully and completely and with a bitterness that I cannot imagine enduring at any time, let alone all the time. None of that stuff mattered. None of it could get at the core self-hatred within. They could never fool themselves. It's just another example of disordered loves. You go after stuff that gets you all sorts of affirmation and you love the affirmation, but at your core, something is messed up. And it is because that is your natural condition. Because you have sought to make your mighty fortress something other than him. That is our natural condition. 
And Paul is saying that to these Ephesians. That was your day. And he kind of then assures them, look, everybody does this. He says to them, you, but he says it's we who all share in that same condition. All of us. It's the way we all roll. And we hear that, and and maybe there's a part of us that goes, oh, good, I'm not alone. Uh, Solidarity, safety numbers. Um, Yes, you're right, we're all commonly frail and our, and our loves are out of whack. Ah, that's a little bit of comfort. And then Paul says, um, let me be very frank with you. It's not just that you're sick. It's not that just you have an affliction. It's that your affliction is an offense. And it's an offense to God. Such that he will say, all of us who have disordered loves are by nature objects of wrath. Um, How shall I define wrath? I'll I'll borrow a line from Sinclair Ferguson. It is a settled hostility to anything that rebels against him. A settled hostility to anything that rebels against him. And as soon as I say those words, I know there are some of us or all of us in the room or even a part of all of us in the room that go, I don't think I want God to be like that. In fact, God isn't like that. He is not like that. He is love. And that is true. He is love. And he is also holy. His holiness in no sense diminishes his love. It's not like, well, I can only fit enough love and holy in the back seat, so I've got to kick away some of the love. No. His love and his holiness are intertwined. They go together. Our problem is we want God to be like Fletch in that scene where, you know, he's he's, he's trying to run away from a bunch of cops, and and he finds this kid trying to hotwire a car. And he takes the car before the kid can actually hotwire it himself, but the kid stays in the car, and he's driving off. And, and, and he says, were you about to steal this car? And he goes, yes, I was. And he goes, well, I'm not even sure if that's illegal anymore. We, we kind of like want God to be that way. We want God to look at our sin and go, well, I'm, you know, I'm not even sure that's illegal anymore. Our natural condition is one to have a disordered love that makes us objects of wrath. And look, I could take that phrase, that word, and we could go down any number of tributaries that, that are reasonable questions about, like, what about hell, and what about his love, and how do these things fit together, and all of those would be important questions to consider. Really, I want to just say this. What effect does it mean to believe that in our natural condition we are objects of wrath? I mean, doesn't that encourage self-loathing, self-hatred, self-harm? Like, have I not introduced an idea that has the equivalent of doctrine to actually make everybody in this room start to feel like they should hate themselves? Uh, No. The answer is no. What should the effect be of believing that we are by nature depraved? There's our old word. That there is no part of us that is not affected by sin. What is it, what is the, what is the reasonable, plausible effect of believing that? I'm going to quote a, a, you know, a very complicated figure in our history, but one who's worthy of consideration. His name is Jonathan Edwards. And he says, the first time that you really believe that depravity is real, he says this, this doctrine teaches us to think no worse of others than of ourselves. It teaches us that we are by nature companions in a miserable, helpless condition, which under a revelation of divine mercy tends to promote mutual compassion if you believe that the first thing that is ought to be planted in your heart is self-loathing self-hatred self-harm you miss the point 
It's actually meant to instill in each one of us a common sympathy for everybody that we encounter rather than ever, ever looking down on somebody with a sneering kind of righteous indignation at what they've done. You have to believe that you are not superior to them. They have just acted on their depravity in ways that you have not. But there, but for the grace of God, go you. Compassion is an expression of love. And when you consider your true natural condition, rather than be so self-absorbed about what it means about you, it actually is meant to have an effect about how you think about somebody else. Now, so far I've said, how do we get to the idea of being loved and loved in return? Wow, that's a stretch. How do we get from there to there? I think it does. When you see that condition, when you grasp that condition, there is a chance that you have made a step, a little closer step towards doing the greatest thing you'll ever do, and that is to love and be loved in return. But we're not done. That's our condition. What next? What else? Let's talk about the second thing. Um, Wouldn't it be great when the elections are over? (sighs) Not to be too cynical, but I, I think everybody in this room is familiar with two kinds of politicians, which does not describe all politicians, but there's a lot of politicians out there like this. There are those politicians who talk a great game. They say all the right things, and then when they get in power, they do nothing. No, I'm sure it's just a hypothetical. We call that passion without action. But then on the flip side, there are those who do From one perspective, amazing things. They enact all sorts of policies that have great, they do great good for a great number of people. But if you you catch the backroom deals that led them to put their sponsorship on the bill, they know and you find out later that what really motivated them was not so much concern or genuine earnest sympathy for those that the policies were meant to enact. It was actually to be able to preserve their power. This looks great on my next campaign commercial. It's all about them. That's action without love. There is passion without action, and there is action without love. And we are familiar with both of them. And so far, in this Ephesians chapter 2, into verse 4, right now, it's been the gospel in a minor key. Walking through a fire-swept land over a gray sky. And then verse 4 happens. But God. And that conjunction's in there for a reason. Because so far it feels like we've been watching a train heading in the direction of a bridge that is out and about to careen into the cavern. But God, someone intervenes. Who intervenes? The Lord intervenes. Such that you hear, sprinkled throughout the text, his mercy, his great love, his kindness. It is in that inward spirit that is true of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he acts towards us, not in a begrudging way, well, I guess I have to, not in a tolerant way, well, live and let live. Mercy, great love, kindness, that doesn't sound like he's having his arm twisted to do it. And what is the expression of that mercy, that great love, and that kindness? It says, he made us alive, together with Christ. Once we were dead, we walked around in trespasses and sins. Now he made us alive. What does it mean that he made us alive? 
We were once dead to sin. Now we are alive to God. What does that mean about our relationship to sin? It means this. You are now dead to sin. You were once dead in sin. Now you're dead to sin. And you immediately think, in what sense? Because I really excel at sin. My, 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 my loves are so disordered at some times that I kind of wonder if they will ever get reshuffled. In what sense are we dead to sin? In this way, sin's claim on you is now dead. And the influence and power that sin once has on you before you meet Jesus, that too is changed. You still sin, but now you are awakened to the folly of it, to the stench of it, to the possibility that it might not be to your advantage to walk in it. You are aware of it. And now, somehow, you are losing your taste for it. And that's the way in which your relationship to sin has died. And before Paul is done, he's not only that your, your relationship to sin is different, now he says you have been raised with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That should sound familiar because that's exactly what we heard last week that led to Jesus. Why do we know that God is able to work in us such that we become more like the Son in whom we are called? Because God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him above all authority. That's what happened in last week's passage. In this week's passage, he's saying, the same time he did that with Jesus, he did that with you. You were raised with Jesus. You are seated with Jesus, which is just highfalutin language to reiterate the doctrine we've talked about over and over and over again. It's this idea that you are united to Christ by faith. He is not your sugar daddy. You are more than just receiving gifts from him. You receive him. You are in him. And he has done that for you. You have his gifts, but mostly you have him. How, how, how does that happen? How is, it that our, how is it that our relationship to sin changes and, and now we have a different kind of understanding of him such that he loves us and we believe that we're beloved and it's this. It's because we now in him have found a better love. Satine in the film thought there was no love, thought there was nothing that you could trust, um, wondered if there was anything out there that she could ever count on that would give her rest. And it is Christian, Christian, who comes to her to try to convince her of a love, to persuade her of a love that has no strings attached. And I want to show you a brief clip from that film in which something begins to click for her. And I know it's a film and I know it's a musical, but friends, there's a reason stories like this get made and songs like this get written. You think that people would have had enough of silly love songs? I look around me and I see it isn't so. <laughs> no. Some people want to build a world with silly love songs. Well, what's wrong with that? I'd like to know Cause here I go Again Love left us up When we belong
I won't. And I... I'll drink all the time. We should be lovers! We can't do that. We should be lovers! And that's a fact. Though nothing Why do they make films like that? Why are their songs written like that? Because people don't believe they can ever find that in the Lord. And so they project upon these perfect romantic things that they wish they could find. For God to intervene as he did in the course of our condition is to say unto us, there is a love that is real, that is true, that we did not deserve or earn or merit, but that came to us. And somehow Satine is persuaded of that love, and it changes. That is a picture of the way God means to intervene on our behalf. And the question is, why would he do that? What's in it for him? Anything? This is where I want to end it. Yours and my modern self-conception, as I referred to earlier, is that we kind of feel like, I'm pretty decent, I'm a nice person. Like, I, I have my faults. I've, I've made errors, um, I'm imperfect, what's not to love? Why do we need what God has offered to us in Jesus? There's a part of us that goes, I don't, I don't need that much charity, man. I don't, it's not, I'm not that bad. And Paul was there to say to us, um, yeah, you are. Because three times in verse 5 and verse 7 and and obviously in verse 8, uh, he mentions one word to explain why he intervened as he did in the condition that we were in. And that word is grace. That what he has for us is a gift. And it has nothing to do with your worth. It has nothing to do with your deserving. It is by grace that you have been saved from your natural condition, from your disordered loves, from the wrath of God. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. Why, why does he have to mention grace like three times? Like once is enough, right? No, it's not. Why does he have to say it three times? You know why. Because you know how much of your life has had baked into it, which you never even had to learn. Nobody ever had to teach you to speak in a certain way and strive in a certain way and act in a certain way and put on a, a certain air in a certain way in order to prove what? That you were lovable that you were enough, that you were good, that you were acceptable, 
And you and I devise all sorts of strategies, subtle as an insensible to them as much as we are, because we believe if we're going to get any good in this life, that's on me. Grace? Maybe. But I'm going I'm to hedge my bets here. I'm going to go after it in my way. That's why Paul's got to repeat the word grace three times. Because he has to break through into not only my natural condition of a disordered love, but my natural condition of a suspicion towards anything other than my ability to make myself acceptable. Such that towards the end of Moulin Rouge, you hear a song entitled, Come What May, I Will Love You Until My Dying Day. What Christian has persuaded Satin of is of a love that's full of grace, in which strings are not attached, in which I will love you till your dying day. Not if you did well this way, I'll love you, or if you didn't do poorly the next day, I'll love you. I will love you till my dying day. That's what the song says. How else can you infer? You you have to infer grace from that kind of song, from that kind of chorus. That's what she becomes persuaded of. And what does she do in response? Well, that's nice. I'm, I'm glad you say that, and now I feel comforted. No, she pledges her love back in response to him. Come what may, I will live in faithfulness to you because she has become persuaded of a love that was real, that was unsolicited, that was unmerited. And came to her quite in spite of her protestations. That's a story, that's a song, that's a film, and we should speak of that, and we should fill our imaginations with stories that are downstream of the gospel. But can I, can I end this with maybe one picture of what it looks like to get it? Because, no, you're not saved by your works. No, you're not saved by your works. But works come into play. They come in response. And what does that look like? Let me, I'll, I'll end with this story. Her name was Catherine Drexel. Her parents were millionaires in the banking industry back in the late 19th century. She becomes a Christian in the Roman Catholic tradition. And uh, her parents die. She inherits those millions. And she wonders, what am I going to, what shall I do with that? And she wrote a letter to her spiritual director and was very frank with him. That's what you're supposed to do with your spiritual director. She says, I look at life in this world, and it's almost like I've taken my doll and ripped her open and seen the sawdust within, or I've taken a drum and I've punched a hole through it and I see how hollow it is. She says, "The, the, the doll full of sawdust and the drum full of nothing, that's what she sees this world to be. It makes so many promises that are vain and empty. So she really believes Ecclesiastes right. You know, this world is full of vanity. She becomes a nun, she joins a convent, and in 1905, her convent and she orchestrate a very quiet purchase of some land in Nashville because she wants to start a a school for black girls. Well, um, the person that they end up buying the property from catches wind of what it's for and tries to stop the sale because of what it's going to do to their property values. Even the women that are part of the community say, we love what you're doing. Just find somewhere else to do it. 
Now, how could Catherine Drexel have responded in that moment? She could have shunned them, called a bunch of greedy racists. Instead, she writes them a letter. And in that letter, she writes this. I can fully realize, I think, how you feel about your old, revered home, around which so many attachments of the past, the sweet relations of home life hover. I acknowledge I feel the same with regard to mine and confess that some time ago when passing it in the trolley cars when I saw a bill of sale on it, a whole crowd of fond recollections of father, mother, sisters came vividly to my imagination. Then I more than ever realized how all things temporal pass away and that there is but one home, strictly speaking, that eternal home where we all hope to meet our own and where there will be no separation anymore. And so temporal things, after all, are only to be valued inasmuch as they bring us and many others, as many as possible, to the same eternal joy for which we were created. This is not somebody that's trying to get in good with God. This is not somebody that's committed to the welfare of others who had no one else to advocate for them, that she might then come to the Lord and say, look what I did for you. This is someone who has already been persuaded of what has been done for her in her natural condition and come for her to intervene on her behalf. This is what it looks like to believe that by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. This is someone who believed that they were created in Christ Jesus as his workmanship to do good works which he prepared for them to do in advance. That's how it shakes out. And that's when you grasp your condition, his intervention, and the only explanation for it, then you discover what is the greatest thing you'll ever do with this light tweak. Not that you love and be loved in return, but that you are loved, in re- you are loved and then you love in return. This is the gospel. And this is the way to the greatest thing that you'll ever do because of the greatest thing he ever did for you first. Let's pray. Father, I know full well that like we said at the beginning, there is no single meal that will sustain us for all the days of our life. We needed this meal for this day. And we will need another meal like it in time. But I ask that it would nourish us for the next leg. That we might believe that we are forgiven and beloved and commissioned as a privilege. That the song that come what may, your love is real, not even unto my dying day, but beyond it. That somehow that might free us up to risk and humility, and compassion, and understanding, and love. Whatever it takes for us to believe that by your Spirit, I ask that you would act on our behalf and reorder our loves this day. In Jesus' name, amen.